Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Perceptions matter, and perceptions of the teaching profession matter, because they shape who goes into teaching and how many teachers there might be in the future. It shapes the training teachers get and how many years teachers might stay in the classroom. Quite simply, if the teaching profession isn't very well respected, fewer of our best, brightest, and most passionate might go into teaching, and fewer young people will go into teaching overall. Unfortunately, according to a new paper titled The Rise and Fall of the Teaching Profession, Prestige, Interest, Preparation, and Satisfaction Over the Last Half Century, the perceptions of the teaching profession are at or near their lowest point in 50 years. And while COVID may have exacerbated this trend, these trends existed before the pandemic started. So to discuss the perceptions of the teaching profession, I invited the paper's authors, Matthew Kraft and Melissa Arnold-Lyon, onto the podcast. Matt Kraft, a former report card guest, is Associate Professor of Education and Economics at Brown University and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And Melissa, or Mimi Lyon, is an assistant professor of public policy at Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at the University of Albany, SUNY. Matt, Mimi, welcome to the report card. Thanks so much for having us. Okay, so you all took a pretty big swing with this paper, right? Let's just capture public perception of the teaching profession over, uh, say, a half century. Mimi, can you start us out? What were you trying to capture when you uh, stepped up to the plate on this one? Yeah, so originally we started a little smaller, but then we started to really find that as we were looking at these trends over the past 50 years, measure across measure, we were seeing a really consistent pattern in terms of the state of the teaching profession, where across all sorts of different measures that we're looking at. We see declines, really rapid declines in the profession in the 1970s. Then we see a pretty swift increase in the 1980s. And then um, the state of the profession was pretty stable for about 20 years. And then around 2010, we started to see a really swift decline again. Well, I have to say that this kind of turbulent period we've all been living in has been filled with headlines of you know, teacher crisis, teacher shortage, teacher burnout. And I think it's really hard to grapple with kind of how do we interpret that evidence, that data, when most of it's kind of in a snapshot. It's like right now, this is what's going on. And so part of the motivation here was to say, well, is this new? Is this as bad as it's ever been? Has it been this bad? Has it been worse? How much better can it get? And and so that's the motivation for this historical perspective that we took that I think Mimi so, you know, clearly described in terms of the, the rises and falls that we observe. Right. Because if you've been listening to this podcast, dear listener, or pretty much any education related news over the past couple of years, everything is due to the pandemic. Right. And there are, there have been some major stressors for teachers over over the period, including political headwinds and all kinds of conflagration over pandemic-related things. But what you found is not, oh, we found this pandemic-related thing. You looked over 50 years and found both cycles, but also a precipitous drop. You looked at four specific measures. Can you lay those out for listeners? So we looked at prestige, at like public perceptions of the prestige of the teaching profession, And to get at that, we use two surveys. The first one just straight up asks a representative sample of the U.S. public how much prestige you think the teaching profession has. And then we also look at a sample of just parents and whether parents say that they want their child to go into teaching. And then we build on that with data on student interest in teaching. So our high school seniors and college freshmen saying that they're interested in going into teaching. We also look at preparation. We use the universe of teacher licenses that have been issued over the past time that they've been collected. And then also a number of college degree completers in education. And then finally, we look at satisfaction. We use a bunch of different measures of teacher satisfaction. And across all of these different 
uh, data sources, we really find super consistent patterns, which just like still blows my mind. So just to put back on here for listeners, if they want to get through all the data sources, you're just going to have to go to the paper because I think there's there's 14 data sources. Is that right? That's just among the core set of data we use to track these four constructs. And then for those who are data enthusiasts, we have a whole sprinkling of additional data that we bring to bear to try to explore what might explain this. So we have a very juicy and salacious kind of 30 page plus uh, technical appendix describing all the details of the data sources, which is also useful and is a contribution to shine a light on kind of where we can learn about these national patterns about the teacher labor force. Right. But for the purposes of this podcast, you're just going to have to trust us. The data are nationally representative. They cover a large period of time, not perfectly consistently. And you had to dig deep to find this range of data to cover this many data points. And one thing we took great care with that I think is important to highlight for listeners is that Yes, we prioritize when available nationally representative samples and population level data, but we also paid very close attention to ensure that the items were identical across survey administrations and that we're using, whenever possible, parallel sets of answer response choices because too often you see in these types of surveys over time they change the response options or add a new one from four to five options. And those I think can matter. So, you know, while these data are not perfect, we've done our best to make sure that we are really looking at apples to apples changes over time. Okay, so to repeat back what I've heard, you looked at four things. So the first is prestige. And that's basically how the public views teaching as far as how prestigious it is, like vis-a-vis lawyers or doctors or journalists, that sort of thing. And then how much interest there was in people who were getting educated in becoming teachers, like high schoolers and so forth. And and a similar one, the preparation pipeline, like how many people are trying to get ready to enter the teaching profession. And then finally, teacher satisfaction, as described by teachers, how satisfied they are being a teacher. So these are four constructs that you were able to capture in myriad sets of data sets. But before I go on to the findings in particular, were there any aspects that you wish you could have captured, but are just kind of lost to time or maybe the the survey evidence just doesn't capture? So one thing that there has been research on in, in kind of shorter time spans and um, that I think matters is the qualifications and preparation of teachers in the teacher workforce. And and that may be proxied by something like uh, performance on a standardized test. And some of that data is available, but we, we didn't find data in a sample that was consistent enough to be overly compelling to lean on that. And so, you know, there's always this debate about kind of quantity, quality, uh, and we don't, want to ignore that, but we, we really think that uh, the, the framing of what we have is around this kind of generational cycle of you grow up in a society that shapes how you view different professions based on how people talk about it in the world. And then you express your interests as you develop career interests as a young high schooler you actually pursue those um, opportunities in in college or graduate school and learn more about the profession and ultimately enter the profession and experience its joys and challenges. And then that kind of filters back into what people hear about the profession itself and how that shapes its prestige. And, and so there, there's this kind of overall cycle that we're ca- trying to capture. We don't pretend that we have captured every single measure that matters for thinking about the profession. Uh, but we think the ones we have do paint an overall picture that's important. Mimi, other things on our wish list that you can think of? Yeah, there were, I think, other data sources that I really looked hard to find and that 
Like we, I would love to get teachers perspectives on the status of the profession, on the reputation of the teaching profession. We looked hard for that kind of measure and there's just not anything consistent over time that we could really use to get at how teachers feel about the profession. We do get at teacher job satisfaction, obviously, but I would have liked to have more opportunities to incorporate surveys specifically of teachers. The other thing is teacher turnover. Frankly, you know, I've written a separate paper with my colleague, Josh Bleiberg, and there's this big debate on, you know, has the pandemic really upended the rates of turnover in the profession? And answering that is incredibly difficult, even in the most recent couple of years, let alone trying to do that in a consistent historical panel over time. Um, you know, you can get a few data points here and there, but nothing that is overly compelling. So you talked about what you weren't able to capture and and how it would be nice to have more. But I'm going to read a list of statements of your findings, because I think listeners are going to be able to kind of capture like all the different threads that sort of weave this together. And they might hear some consistent things in these statements. And then I'm just going to ask you to tell us what you think is underlying these. So here we go. Perceptions of teacher prestige have fallen between 20 and 47% in the last decade to be at or near the lowest levels recorded in the last half a century. Interest in the teaching profession among high school seniors and college freshmen has fallen 50% since the 90s and 38% since 2010, reaching the lowest level in the past 50 years. The number of new entrants into the profession has fallen by roughly one-third over the last decade, and the proportion of college graduates that go into teaching is at a 50-year low. Teacher job satisfaction is also at the lowest level in five decades, with the percent of teachers who feel stress of their job is worth it dropping from 81% to 42% in the last 15 years. The number of students enrolled in and completing teacher preparation programs saw a 33% decline in enrollment and a 28% decline in the students completing preparation programs from 2010 to 2018. Between 2009 and 2022, the percentage of parents who saw teaching as a favorable career for their children fell by half. I have a bunch of other lines in here that say things like 50 years and a rapid decline recently, but basically the consistent pattern is it's at a low now and at a relatively steep fall off from sort of a plateau that was around for a couple of decades. And then there was another drop like in the years from the seventies towards up until the eighties. Um, What do you make of these things? I mean, there's a pattern here, right? You see it consistently across these measures. They're reflecting something that is consistent, but it's not just, well, it's been falling, right? I mean, that'd be one simple story that you couldn't really tie to anything. We see this drop in the 70s, sort of to the 80s, and then sort of a plateau, and then a recent decline. So help me understand this. So... Huge questions about what explains this, but before we even think about what explains it, let's make sure we see the forest for the trees here in this kind of sea of, I think, concerning facts. The first is that the steep and persistent declines we've seen across the measures we capture over the last decade plus really point to the fact that you kind of launched the the podcast with, that We talk a lot about the pandemic's effect on schooling and teachers, but this has been a phenomenon that has happened steadily over the last decade plus and really points to much more uh, deep structural challenges that the profession is facing, that the pandemic has only exacerbated. But we cannot look to the pandemic as this, you know, once in a a century problem that will finally muddle through and then we'll be back to where we, you know, hope to be. That's just not what the evidence suggests. I think the second thing that the historical perspective provides is that we have been in a similar decline, a prolonged decline before, and we came out of that. And we managed to do so with an equally steady and sustained rise 
declining in the 70s and rising in the 80s. And what this does is I think it, it points to the fact that we have agency as a nation, as policymakers, as educators in the public to decide how we value the profession and how that value decision shapes the policies of who we are recruiting and how we pay teachers and what their work experience is like. And all of that means that while I think these figures that you listed off, and I'm so glad you got to tee that up because that's a mouthful and I'm glad that we didn't have to rattle that off. It means that while they're concerning, they shouldn't leave us paralyzed with, with kind of doom and gloom that there, there is a, an opportunity for us to repeat the success of coming out of this uh, hole that we've done before. And help me a little bit understand, you know, the, the, so what, right. You could do the Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, that's a shame uh, about how the profession is perceived, but there must be a reason Mimi, why we should mount some effort to improve the prestige of the profession. I mean, Matt is saying, Hey, we can do something, but what are the outcomes that we might expect from improving the prestige or uh, resuscitating it from its current low levels on the measures you've found? Well, I mean, first, I think it's worth saying right off the bat that um, there's good research, and we've known for a long time that teachers are the number one most important school-based factor that affects student achievement. And pretty much everybody agrees that teachers are fundamentally important for student learning, for school functioning. I mean, teachers are sort of the backbone of our education system. So first, I think that just big picture, we should care about teachers and the teaching profession if we care about students and, and student learning. And then second, I think that like, why should we do something? That's really, I mean, partly what we're trying to get at is that, yes, we're in a bad place right now. And um, people have been saying that, teachers have been saying that. They've been uh, telling the press, telling all sorts of people in the media during the pandemic about how bad things were. But this has actually been going on before that, before the Red Fred teacher strikes, when teachers came out and said, this is a really bad situation. Even before that, the profession has been on the decline. But we've been in this place before. So we've had, we've seen really, really similar declines before. And it's not a hopeless story. There's things we can do. I don't think we know exactly what to do. There's no smoking gun here. We do explore a bunch of different hypotheses. And what we're seeing is that causes are probably multifaceted and they're dynamic over time. So we're trying to sort of set an agenda to get more research to really get at this like cause and effect type questions. But we're hoping that our study can point to data sources and um, sort of potential hypotheses that might be worth starting with. And I think what we see is that at least in the 70s and 80s, what really tracks on to the decline and the rise then is real teacher wages. So I think that's a place to look. And then more recently, what we're seeing that really tracks on to the decline since 2010, um, we're looking at uh, accountability reforms, the perceived loss of job security and professional autonomy on the part of teachers, and then also sort of the decreasing influence of teachers unions and uh, labor restrictions that may play a role in these um, declines since about 2010. For our listeners who may say, well, you know, it, it is what it is. What does the world look like in 10 years if the current declines in teacher prestige, if the value of, of that sort of institution or that that job in the future continues to slide versus a world in which uh, America sort of turns things around and begins to uh, appreciate and put more importance on the teaching profession. How do those two worlds look differently aside from obviously the fact that in one teachers aren't esteemed and in the other they are? Yeah, I just want to really point out how well you asked that question because 10 years is that's like the minimum time that we're looking at. 
these are big changes that are going to take time. And so really taking a long-term view, not expecting some kind of rapid, oh, we change teacher salary and all of a sudden, boom, bang, bing, now the profession is on the rise. I think that it's going to be a long sort of slow generational task, but one that is worth doing because if not, people aren't going to want to become teachers. And if people don't want to become teachers, something's got to give. And and frankly, what happens in this context of this slide is it forces us into a set of all bad choices. And then we debate about which choice we should pick among just bad choices. So, you know, we may look at the localized teacher shortages we're seeing in different uh, communities or subject position types. And we say, hey, like we we need to, you know, lift these barriers to entry because we need to get people in. They're not serving any productive purpose. Uh, and, and then we start debating, well, you know, do we really need to perform well on a, a licensure test or to have any prior experience or a BA? And none of those are, you know, definitively going to guarantee great instruction. But when we force our hands to say, the only way we're going to get teachers in here is we start just, you know, cutting as many quarters as we can. It it becomes kind of a race to the bottom, frankly, rather than stopping and saying, we're going to start with a values-based proposition about what type of teachers we want for our children. And if we each did that, and we thought about our own kids, I think the conversation we'd be having would be very different. You're talking about a big a, a big group here, right? Teachers. That includes the high school physics teacher and it includes pre-K teacher and everybody in between. There's a huge gap there. I'm not asking you to parse each subject and grade level across 50 years, but is there any indication whether this is just one ball of wax that is impenetrable or are there differentials in it? We average across all types of variation. So the short answer is there's huge variation. Geographically, you know, some states are paying their teachers on average much more, you know, to to have a kind of accessible um, entryway into the middle class. And others, frankly, on average, are forcing teachers to work two, three jobs just to kind of make ends meet. And in the same way, we know that um, even within a state, there's huge variation in, you know, a, a, a area where there's a robust pipeline of teachers uh, compared to kind of uh, teacher prep education deserts or just huge variation across subject areas where, you know, traditionally and even in recent work, um, we continue to see that teachers in STEM fields uh, are... Um, much less available in the labor market, and there's a much higher demand for them relative to supply. So 100% there is meaningful and important variation, but this is an attempt to paint the outline of a national picture. And to color in between the lines there, we need very rich and detailed data. And frankly, to do that, you need to telescope in on a specific state or district where you have this micro level data that can tell us a lot about those nuances. Unfortunately, it's really not very feasible to have both nuance and that national level historical panel at the same time. So then let's look at it by time. Totally fair. But we're seeing sort of a decline over the past few years. And we saw this decline in the 70s. Should we draw connections between those two? Did they happen for similar reasons? Are there similar patterns that you think are precipitating both? Mimi? Yeah, obviously, we're not in the 70s. The causes are probably different. But I think the big picture takeaway from the decline in the 70s relative to now is that we've been in a similar situation before. And so we shouldn't just think that the figures that you listed out before about really the rough state of the teaching profession right now are 
going to be stuck that way. So if history is teaching us anything, it's that the teaching profession is dynamic. And so maybe the causes are similar, maybe they're not. But the point is that we can we can get out of it. It's going to take work. There's changes that are going to have to be made, but we can get out of the um, currently very low relative status of the teaching profession. All right. Right now we want to do a section called grade it. You were both teachers. So Matt, I'll start with you. How would you grade your own job satisfaction when you were teaching? A minus. Mimi? C. C. Mimi, give us the explanation. A, a minus is, is an easy one. C, why? I mean, I, I wanted to be a teacher and I came in and I really struggled. I was working like 80 hour weeks. I did not feel very successful. I was sort of constantly prepping new things. I loved my students. I loved building relationships with students, but the school was all about the standardized tests and I worked to my bone and um, I was just so tired. Now, if you were to ask a different question, which is what grade would you have given the prestige you felt as a teacher? I would have said a D minus because while I deeply enjoyed my time in the classroom, when I would meet up with friends who had been doing other work for a couple of years and had a promotion to show for their work, a new title, a raise, or even spoke to, you know, the, you know, parents of friends and the look you'd get, oh, that's, that's just so noble of you. How, how generous of you to, to work as a teacher or, you know, what comes next? Like that can't be your long-term plan. And, and that type of kind of daily frankly, subtle derision. It, it adds up. That plays right into the next one, Matt. How about the prestige of college teaching? I'll give it a B. B, which is much higher than the D minus for K-12 teaching. Mimi? I think it kind of depends, honestly, on uh, maybe I'm too much in the weeds, but I think it sort of depends on if you're talking about tenure track or if you're talking about getting graduate students to teach as adjuncts. And I've done both, you know, and I think the prestige of a tenure track professor, A. I think um, the prestige of a graduate student who's teaching classes as an adjunct, D. Okay, Mimi, paying teachers over $100,000 a year. Well, it's like relative to cost of living or, I mean, it's New York City is a hard place to live. So I don't, but yeah, probably uh, all teachers. On average. On average. Um, B minus. Matt? I'll give it a B plus with the caveat that how we structure pay matters, I think, equally as how much we pay. And teachers deserve to be paid more, full stop. But just blanket raises alone, I don't think is going to get us to resolve many of the challenges that we're facing. Okay, Matt, I'm going to double down on this one. Masters pay premiums for teachers. You're really putting it to us here. I like it. C. C. And Mimi? Um, yeah, C. C. Give me the rationale. You're both for paying teachers more on average, but not for master's degrees? Well, the as you mentioned, the teacher workforce is enormous. We have almost 4 million educators out there, and the step-in-lane salary schedule creates an incredibly powerful incentive uh, for educators to earn a master's degree. And in fact, that's now required for licensure, long-term permanent licensures in many states. And so obviously the market up in higher education responded to that to provide those credential options. And I don't think that we have a consistent level of quality at that scale, um, nor does it seem like the evidence bears out that those are consistently making a difference for kids. That doesn't mean that 
we can't meaningfully support teachers to improve their practice through both formal, you know, pre-preparation education or on-the-job learning. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the current status quo, I don't think, is doing that well. All right. Mimi, the effectiveness of teacher strikes. A minus. I think that, well, so I've been, I've been working on this too. Um, I think teacher strikes are desperate. And so teachers only strike when they're really, when their hands are tied, when there aren't a lot of other options. And what do they do? They get people's attention and they might get some wins for teachers in terms of what they're looking for on the bargaining table. And I think in terms of capturing attention, teacher strikes do a good job. In terms of wins on the bargaining table, that works for teachers. As far as like what that means for society, Matt and I are still working on trying to figure that out, TBD. But, um, but I would say that uh, their uh, strikes are, even when they're not totally achieving their goals in terms of uh, raising expenditures, they're still capturing attention, sharing, uh, kind of sharing a teacher-driven narrative, which I think for us to hear. I'll give it a, a B minus, but I, I want to be clear. I think strikes are a great example of the, the choice set consists of all bad options because of how we have historically let the teaching profession degrade over time. And so teachers' backs are up against the wall. I think that that leaves them with bad options to advocate for what we think are uh, increasingly broadly collective uh, agendas for kids, but certainly kids being out of school. I've got another paper about the importance of learning time um, with Sarah Novikov. And, and so that matters too. And, and therein is the kind of the crux of the bad choices we're faced with. Yeah, I will say I would not give the same grade to a very long teacher strike. My grade applies to a short teacher <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Love it. Matt, online tutoring for K-12 students, online tutoring. I'd say its current delivery is at about a C, and I'm hopeful that if we stick with it, we can get it up to a B, maybe a B plus if it's the kind that is you're with the same uh, tutor. It's during the school day. It's got structured instructional materials that go with it not the 24-7 call-in hotlines that have gained a lot of uh, market share because they've been able to deliver their product immediately to kind of overwhelm districts. Mimi, um, the quality of teacher preparation in schools of education? B, teachers need preparation. I think there is huge variability in the quality of preparation. Um, I think that training on the job doesn't work for teachers, but they do need to be in classrooms. Um, so I think that it's complicated, but that having a structure and a system for getting teachers trained before they're leading a classroom full of 20, 30, 40 kids is something that we have to do, you know, but the system's not perfect right now. Um, last from both of you, I'll start with you, Mimi, the urgency with which teachers return to the classroom during the pandemic. You have to start with me on that one. Um, across the board. Yeah. B minus maybe C, nah, C plus, C plus. C plus. Matt? I'd give it a B minus. And my caveat is that I think we are casting teachers in a poor light because schools were forced to fill in for what was inadequate public health response. And that's just a constant thing that we've seen over the history of education in our country is that we lack in many areas a robust social safety net. And we look to schools to fill in when those nets become frayed and there's large holes in them. And, and this was another case. All right, that's it for Grade It. And I must admit, 
That was the toughest set of graded prompts I had ever given anyone. So high, high grades for being willing to submit yourselves to those without passing on any of them. But you probably didn't know passing was an option, did you? <laughs> that was not in the choice set, although it would have been appreciated <laughs> in advance. But no incomplete. Questions, okay. Hard questions that we have to grapple with. And I'm sure my answers will change tomorrow. But uh, I, I love it. All right. So let's turn to some explanations. And in your paper, you look at eight possible explanations and we probably don't have enough time to go over all of them, but these aren't necessarily like, oh, here's the one quick fix we need to do. It's just the things that might be explaining what is driving this drive down in the prestige of the teaching profession. So to put a fine point on this, you get eight, and I'm just going to list them here so you don't have to. Education funding, teacher pay, distinct from education funding, outside opportunities, unionism, barriers to entry, working conditions, accountability, autonomy, and school shootings. So eight pretty diverse, pretty pretty broad sets. Um, which of these hypotheses do you think have the most explanatory power and which ones do you think may be the least? Matt? I'm going to start with a large caveat. And, and normally I find that frustrating in a research paper because I say, just tell me what you found. Don't list your limitations and you know bore us. But this exercise of constructing a historical single national pattern about the overall state of the teaching profession is, I think, an important, powerful, descriptive uh, set of facts. Then we start to wade into the waters of, of kind of macroeconomic analysis. We have these kind of one observed state of the world and we want to try to explain it. And the tools available for doing that, that even try to approximate cause and effect are extremely limited and, and crude, frankly. And so that doesn't mean the question isn't incredibly important to answer, and so we don't shy away from asking it. But what we try to do is to read the, his, the literature uh, to see what evidence has already kind of highlighted and then bring to bear additional sources of data to try to say, hey, what just kind of passes the eye test here? And when we do that with all those caveats about reverse causality and kind of you know, causation is not defined when you find a correlation. And we're not even doing correlations here. We're doing like the, the two-graph eyeball test for a technical term. But when we do that, I think we find it pretty striking, the alignment in the rises and uh, declines in overall real teacher wages along this 50-year time span. Now, there's a lot of debate. You could have a whole other podcast around how should we measure teacher compensation? Should we measure it in you know, real wages as we have, which we think is just a very simple kind of hands above the board type of way, or in relative wages to other professions or um, you know, other college-educated workers? And I think examining that question matters. But from a simple first pass, it, it's hard to look at this and to think that wages aren't part of the picture. Wages, I mean, if you look at the sociological literature, wages are a metric of how they measure prestige of a profession. I mean, it, it's hard to conceive of a world in which we pay a minimum wage. The prestige is off the charts, right? I mean, there's, there's some mechanical connection in there. And, and the, in the converse to that, and I get to say this because my dad is a lawyer, it is lawyers who have seen their kind of public prestige uh, plummet over the last several decades and is, is much lower than teachers, frankly, even today, but uh, on average are paid much more than educators. And so it, it, it's not, you know, the only thing that shapes how we view a profession, but uh, it certainly is going to influence who chooses to be interested in it, who stays in it, um, the satisfaction that you might derive because of the ways in which you may be stressed about, you know, meet, making ends meet or burn out because you're working an extra job. And, and we hear from teachers that that happens more than we might think. 
So wages is one. And then we see this kind of constellation of con policy reforms that we think are kind of at least concurrent with the decline that we see in the most recent decade that it's hard to say, like, we know it was exactly this one or it, it wasn't that one. But we've seen an emphasis over the last two decades with broad school accountabilities with NCLB and then under race to the top, kind of a focus more on the individual teacher that has shaped teachers working conditions in a real way. It has shaped at least their perceptions about their job security, albeit many, not many teachers have actually lost their jobs in formal dismissal processes. But those perceptions matter, especially for who wants to enter the profession. So we, we think this is a conversation about both wages and policy that is set at the state and federal level. And that's encouraging because we can actually pull levers to, to change those things. I also think the literature points to working conditions, like your relationship with your principals and your colleagues. And that is a piece that presents itself as really difficult to move from any kind of macro ground, uh, you know, top down type of way. Mimi, what did Matt miss? Well, I think um, as far as what we don't see, I think when you look at Kind of interesting, and I think he was sort of alluding to this, and you were too, that we are we start with education funding. And um, when you just look at education funding, of which so much is made up of teacher salaries, so you kind of think that teacher wages and education funding would really track, it doesn't really track on the same way. And so um, there's something, I think, very specific about teacher salaries and what an individual teacher is actually receiving that seems to be really um, passing the eyeball test, whereas uh, just total expenditures, expenditures per pupil is is not passing the eyeball test. And like, I'm just scrolling around so I can find it, but expenditures have just kind of been going up and it doesn't really track that uh that same dyna dynamic fluctuation that we've seen in the teaching profession. How about the role of unions? I mean, we do have these two falls over two sort of very different periods. And we can also say that those declines don't necessarily have to be <laughs> caused by the same confluence of factors. But what do you make of the, the role of unions in this? And it's not just prestige, it's interest in it. It's multiple factors. Yes, totally. And I think I was kind of... Um, I was not bringing that up before because I kind of put the um, decline since 2010 in relation to policy also kind of bundled in that question of unionism, because what we've seen since 2010 is also a resurgence in re labor restrictions, restrictive union pol policies that make it harder for teachers to unionize, like right to work policies at the state level and at the, at the national level with the Janus decision in 2018. And so I think those kind of policy levers that all that did switch kind of simultaneously with the race to the top work around 2010 and teacher accountability are uh, places to look for where we might want to um, think about policy solutions here. I now what we don't see is that the declines in the 1970s were uh, positively correlated with unionism. And in fact, the opposite is sort of true, where unions were just getting started, were really building, were expanding in the 1970s, while the teacher profession was on the decline. Now, there are a lot of different ideas for why we might see this kind of differing trend in terms of union. My idea, is, our idea, not just my idea, is that the kind of industrial unionism or business unionism that was more prominent in the 1970s may have contributed to some of the declines or at least not reversed them. And that kind of focus on teachers, not students, sense of the hierarchical kind of structure for unionism may not have been uh, good for the profession. But that has changed. And I think more recently, teachers unions, especially if they've been on the defensive with these labor restrictions, especially since 2010, 
I think union strategies are changing. And so we see, I see some of the more recent teacher strikes even, and kind of the alliances that teachers unions are trying to build with other community groups as they're going on strike as shifts in the nature of unionization in the United States, where unions are trying to um, build coalitions and work to kind of increase the status of the teaching profession in a different way. I think there's sort of a shift in posturing on the part of the unions that might explain some of that differing trends between the 70s and now. Matt, in our sort of uh, post-pandemic myopia, we might say, oh, well, it's all the, it's got to be the politicization of the teaching profession. I mean, we don't want the teaching profession left out of everything else that gets politicized these days. And it certainly has been, right? But you didn't really have, you know, a 50-year perspective on that. And, you know, you could argue that it's not a new thing, that it has been politicized. But I would think that we've seen, I mean, I would hazard to say that it's been politicized in a new way. But my take on this, and I'll just offer it, you tell me if you're wrong, you might not have been able to measure this over time, but that doesn't mean that increasing the politicization of the teaching profession at a pretty broad scale couldn't continue to make this problem worse, even if you can't track it over the past 50 years. Is that fair to say? I think that the teaching profession has been politicized throughout our nation's history. I mean, we can look at moments of, you know, red scares and, you know, labeling teachers as socialists and communists. We can look at the rise in collective bargaining and, and unionism, uh, you know, was also very contentious. You know, we the first round of massive teacher strikes in the late 60s and early 70s. And so there's no doubt that we are living in a moment when schooling and education is increasingly being politicized, but it's a, it's a political act. It's this kind of area where we're grappling with what do we want to develop in our nation's children as their view of our country and what type of, you know, civic virtues do we value and how are we preparing them to, to participate in our democracy? So there's no doubt that I think the increasing laws passed by states around the ability to teach about issues related to race and sexuality matter, that the questions about whether teachers can be reported by parents who are doing something that may offend them and they could lose their teaching license or their job, that shapes teachers' experiences, their senses, their sense of job security and their perceptions. And if that, you know, if it continues to be this battlefield, I think it will feel like teaching, you know, our teachers are being used in pawns in this broader political theater. And so that's certainly not going to help. But I don't want to minimize the political nature of education. It, it is, uh, in some ways, a political act. Fair enough. And I should announce that Mimi had to, to leave because we're running over time. So, Matt, you're going to have to anchor the last leg of the podcast here, which I want to focus a little bit on. So what? What do we do? The perceptions of the teaching profession, as we've said, they dipped before and then recovered. What's your best explanation for why they might have recovered before and whether we can port any of that over to our current context? Money and wages stand out as one of the key kind of concurrent changes we see in the 80s. And I think part of what galvanized that investment was the Nation at Risk report that came out in 1982 and kind of, I think, shocked our nation's consciousness about where we are as a country and what are the major threats we face. And they framed it as kind of a, a wartime threat. And I'm not saying that a new federal report is going to itself, you know, uh, reverse these downward trends. But I think what it did do is it stimulated a discussion that was taken seriously by, I think, people on both the left and right about what do we need to do to make sure we are attracting the best and brightest into the teaching profession and preparing our students and ultimately supporting the future economic competitiveness and well-being and, uh, it, you know, inventors 
in our country. And, and so what I hope that we learn from that is that investing in educators matters, but it's, it's a generational type of investment. It's not only about paying the educators we have, but it's about paying wages that will attract that senior in high school to be interested in inter- entering the teaching profession. And I, I think it's also a question about, well, what do we need to be able to do to change the policy environment so that we listen to teachers when they tell us that they are really struggling. And I think that's been absent in a lot of the policy debates right now. And it's just shocking to me that we can hear teachers tell us about how overwhelming the current context of their work is with the challenges their students are coming back from being out of school uh, and the you know time that they've lost and the skills that they're struggling with. And to kind of cast that as well, you know, teacher shortages are not universal and turnover isn't, you know, double what it used to be or or even, you know, considerably larger. Like, I've got these facts and therefore, like, "Ah, this is kind of, a you know, an overblown concern. I, I think instead, if we were to just ask ourselves, if your kid's teacher came to you and said, this is what I'm facing, I'm feeling incredibly overwhelmed the task at hand seems to be something that I don't have the support to be able to achieve, yet I, I feel as though I go home and I'm being cast as the villain for this kind of macro societal moment and challenge. I, I doubt we would all react with, well, I, let's take that with a grain of salt. I think we would that personal connection would cause us to be motivated. And, and so my kind of appeal is for us to make that local lens that we have uh, apply more broadly and, and to say, hey, well, where do we want to go from here? What type of investments, both financial and in terms of uh, the policy structures that we want to attract the teachers that we need are necessary to get there? And there's no quick fix here. We need to be measuring this in terms of kind of 5, 10, 15 year patterns. And and frankly, that is longer than most political, you know, ascendant careers and, and, you know, political movements. So it's hard to sustain that. But I think this paper, if anything, has to be a wake up call and a call to action for recognizing that we need to decide what future we want, because the future we have without taking action with the status quo is very bleak. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Matt Kraft and Mimi Lyon. We'll include a link to the rise and fall of the teaching profession and some of Matthew and Mimi's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Matt Malmes.